from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to jump right into it this morning. Uh, but first I want to tell you, I almost named this message, which I've got, drop everything, I almost named it Bad Company. But then that song would be going in my head the rest of the morning, kind of like it is right now. See, my point is that Jesus often kept uh, what we would call bad company with society, and, um, you know, but he did it for a good reason. Um, when Jesus countered, encountered a man named Levi that we just heard about a second ago, also called Matthew, I'll be calling him Matthew throughout the morning, um, just, I don't know, a little tidbit. Um, he got, has both names in the Bible, but we don't know why he has two names. There's some tradition behind it, but I like to stick to what we find in the Bible. There's plenty of material there, so I'm going to just stick to that. So let's jump right in and see how, how we can apply God's words to our lives. Um, this, was good, this one's going to be pretty easy for us this morning, but if we're not making that connection from reading what God wrote to us and applying it to our lives, making our life different because of who God is, then we're kind of missing the point here. So we're going to jump into Luke chapter 5. Um, you know, throughout in Lent, I've been going through um, the book of Luke. So I'm sticking to kind of the same author, the same ideas. Uh, so we can mix, mix them around, play with them a little bit, talk about them, um, and learn for, more from them. So Luke 5 verse 27, um, NASB says this, After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth. Um, and he said to him, follow me. Verse 28 says, Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. Now, fair warning, I'm assuming you know something about this moment already, because um, when Luke says that Matthew left everything, there was a great deal on Matthew's tax collector table that he left behind. Um, tax collectors play a significant role in the New Testament, and certainly um, in, our, in our gospel lesson this morning. Um, there's a lot going on here. Um, later on in the, in the gospel of Luke, we meet another tax collector, a chief tax collector, as it says, um, named Zacchaeus. He's the guy that shinnied up a tree so he could watch Jesus when he went by. And Jesus called him by name and went over and had a meal at his house. Just like we saw had, happened here just a moment ago uh, with Matthew. Went over to Matthew's house and had a meal. So that's, Matthew appears to be just kind of a tax guy. But that doesn't mean that um, we should feel sorry for him, especially economically. So now taxes in Rome... Uh, were a complex affair. Uh, there was a lot going on. That's kind of a, an understatement. Rome would actually lease the right to be a tax collector to the highest bidder. So Rome would look at an area and say, okay, there's about this many people here and they do this much commerce. We want this much for taxes. So the tax collectors would bid on that, either up to what Rome said, maybe sometimes a little bit over. And so they would charge a little bit more than Rome expected, and that was called their surcharge that they would keep um, and they would pocket. That's the way they made their living, and some of them made an awful good living at it. Now, we're still in Capernaum, in the Capernaum area, right in the, in the area of Galilee. So the people in Galilee um, could expect to pay um, land tax, just like we do today. Uh, there was also what was called a toll tax. And then there was tax on the items they purchased. We pay sales tax right at the register. Well, that's not the way it worked in the market. They based it on how much you made. They said, okay, if you make this much, you probably spent this much buying things, so we're going to tax you that much. Also, all told, they probably got taxed somewhere between 20 and 30% of their income, um, in, at least in that region of Galilee. Now, as far as Matthew goes, in addition to all of that, Capernaum, the town where he's in, um, is kind of on the, is the last stop between two uh, uh, territories. Um, Herod Antipas had a territory to the south, and Herod, uh, Philip had a territory to the north. All the goods that went in between those areas and all the merchants that went between those areas 
also had to pay a tax. And Matthew was collecting all that and taking a little bit maybe off the top because, again, he was, it's part of his living. So that's, that's what they, tax collectors were really well off. Matthew was most likely a very, very wealthy man. Now, um, we don't know that it doesn't say anywhere that he was corrupt, that he was taking way more than he should have, but, but even if he was just taking what he should have, he's going to be a very, very wealthy man. And the people, um, the Jewish people despised tax collectors because they looked at them as traitors, like they were working for the enemy. Um, so the, the priests, the, the, um, the people, the, the religious teachers, the scribes, um, also looked down on them and said they're unclean people. Even the Romans looked down on tax collectors because they said, well, you know, you're turning on your own people for a profit. You are really, literally selling them out so that you can make a profit. So they didn't even think anything of it. So these people are just beaten down in every step. Jesus says, talks about him. He doesn't really go against tax collectors, but he lumps them in a crowd with prostitutes. Look at Matthew himself writing this. This is Matthew writing this in chapter 21. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. I know that's a little out of context, but the point I'm making is that Jesus lumps them together. So, okay. So how does Jesus deal with this bad company, these people that he's going with, people like this? Um, Let's uh, first take a step back. Um, and bring uh, the scene a little closer um, to reality to talk about that actual, the moments that, that Jesus was talking to Matthew. Um, a different version of this, uh, of the same thing, Luke 25, or, I'm sorry, Luke 5, 27. It says, later, Jesus went out and looked straight at a tax collector called Levi, who sat at his office desk. Follow me, Jesus said to him. A better translation of that um, looked straight at him might be a better translation might be looked straight through him. Um, this wasn't a casual glance. This wasn't just um, you know Jesus coming out and seeing oh, the first person I see I'm going to pick and ask him to come and be my, exci- my disciple. No, this is not a casual glance. This word, this Greek word means uh, to examine thoroughly, to contemplate, to learn by looking. Okay, so Jesus gives him that look, right? And there's Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth, knows who Jesus is. I'm going to get to that in a second. Knows who Jesus is, but now he looks right at him. He's looking right through him, right? And that look now wasn't for Jesus' sake. Jesus wasn't examining Matthew. Jesus knows who Matthew is inside and out. Jesus, God knows our thoughts before we think him. He knows who Matthew is. That look was for Matthew. Because now this rabbi is looking straight at him, looking at him, and, and, and not just any rabbi, man. So think about what Matthew already knows. We're in chap- or verse 27 of chapter 5. In chapter 5 alone in Luke, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus heals a man of leprosy. Now we could talk about that for like a sermon series, how significant that event was, how that showed that Jesus was the Messiah. So then after that, it says crowds gathered, thronged around him to hear what he was going to teach and to see what he was going to do next. So in Luke chapter 5, the next thing he does is he's in a house in Capernaum, and it is so crowded you can't get in the house. And there's so many people around you can't even see in the doors and the windows. That's when the four friends bring their paralyzed friend on a pallet, and they bring him up on the roof and lower him down, and Jesus heals this guy. So now... Now, after that part is that that's when he calls Matthew. He comes out. So Matthew knows who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's not just some rabbi coming along, but it is a rabbi, right? And sometimes we, um, we use the word rabbi. Some, we have some negative connotations, but we really shouldn't uh, about rabbis. But this, this rabbi calls a disciple. 
That's how he does it. He comes out and he, he picks them out of all the applicants that want to be this, this uh, rabbi's disciple. And he looks at them intently. And he says these two words that we see in, in verse 27. These two words. Follow me. Those are the words that the rabbi says to his disciple. Gives them that intent look. That's what's happening to Matthew here. So Matthew now who deep down inside of himself knows that he's really not in the right profession. It's very lucrative. He's making a lot of money. But he's not in the right profession. He's not in the right crowd. He's hanging out with, these, with that bad company. But what does Matthew do? He drops everything. Stands up and he walks away from the stacks of coins that are sitting there on his table. Left it. Walked away. And followed Jesus. And then if you're reading like Matthew's Gospel here, I'm going to get to that in a second. If you're reading Matthew's Gospel for the first time, uh, it takes a plot twist here that you wouldn't expect. It gets a little crazy. So uh, this, this story is in, um, this historical account, I should say, is in three of the four Gospels. So we're going to take a peek at Matthew himself, what he wrote about it. This is Matthew 5. It's easy to remember. It's in Luke 5 and Matthew 5 also. It says, uh, verse 29 says, Then Levi threw a great banquet for Jesus in his home. A large number of tax collectors and others sat down to eat with him. So Matthew throws a party, right? He throws a shindig. And he invites some of his closest friends. Remember I said that every other part of society had shunned these people. No of the other Jews, his fellow Jews, want to be around him. The priests, they certainly don't want to be around him. Even the Romans don't think very highly of him. So birds of a feather flock to... So the tax collectors are there with him. And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of tax collectors in here with him. Invites his closest friends. Through a large, a great banquet for Jesus at his home. It says a large number of tax collectors. That's a throng. That's a multitude. That's a, so that's a big bad company, I guess, something. But it also says, and others were there. Okay? Talk to me about this. Who are the others? Who do you suppose that is? Well, look in verse 30. It says, but those who were scribes and Pharisees were among them. What? You know, if you're at that party, you're tax collectors, and you're hanging out, and you're having a great party, and you're honoring this Jesus guy, and Matthew's telling all about him, not just how he got called, but talking about how this guy is the Messiah, and this is how we know it. Tax collectors are, all right, that's cool, but all of a sudden these scribes and Pharisees are there. You'd be like, what are you guys doing here, right? Well, they're doing what they do best. They're grumbling and they're complaining. Not to Jesus, but to Jesus' disciples about them hanging out with the wrong crowd, keeping this bad company. But Matthew just can't keep this amazing news to himself. Right? He wants to everybody to know what's happened here. Again, not just the fact that he got called by a rabbi, literally won the lottery here. He wants everybody to know this is the Messiah, and this is the reason I'm following this guy. This is the reason I got up and left everything to follow him. And then I'm sure that my man Luke was more than pleased to record Jesus' response to the Pharisees saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? Luke is a a doctor, a physician, and this is what Jesus says in verse 31. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I'm sure Luke was smiling when he was writing that one down. Now, God chose Matthew for a very specific purpose, a very important reason. Matthew's one of the more educated disciples. He had to be in order to be sitting in that tax collector's booth to begin with. And again, honestly, we don't know a whole lot about Matthew. And truth be told, we don't know a whole lot about any of the disciples or many of the disciples. 
There's teachings from tradition, but very little by way of fact from the Bible about Matthew. Except we've got this gospel of Matthew's. Right? And the way to get to know an author is to read his writings and to read what's important to him and read what he's writing down. We learn quite a bit about this author. Mark Twain said that. Mark Twain said that generations from now and centuries from now, people can know me by just reading what I wrote. They can know me because there I am and all the... I think he just said that to sell more books, but the point is valid that we can get to know that author. What we learn from reading the Gospel of Matthew is that he was a true follower of Jesus. Someone who literally hung on every word Jesus spoke. Matthew is the one that gives us a detailed Sermon on the Mount. Without Matthew, we wouldn't have the Sermon on the Mount laid down like that. If you open up your Bible and it's red letters, a ton of it in Matthew is red. Matthew gives us more of Jesus' words, actual words from Jesus' mouth, than, the, than any of the other Gospels. The Lord certainly gave Matthew a special gift. You know, and Matthew never wavered away from that gift. He didn't ask for other gifts. Like sometimes we want some other gift that God bestows on other people. My point is Matthew, at least we don't see the evidence of it, Matthew didn't preach like Peter. He didn't preach like Stephen or anybody else like that. But he, there he was, though, taking notes, being a scribe, keeping a record of what happened. We get to know Matthew a couple of times, a couple of different places. Um, there's, a, there's something I want to show you. There's a, um, a sculptor, an Italian sculptor named Camillo Rusconi. That's fun to say. Very ta- accomplished Italian sculptor around the Baroque period. And he sculpted some of the, the apostles, I should say now, some of the apostles in part of a bigger project. And his interpretation of Matthew might be the best. There's lots of other ones, but his interpretation of Matthew might be the finest sculpture we have. Let's take a look at this first one. You see him there, peering in, the, in that book, right? And as any good art goes, it leaves us up into interpretation. What is he looking at? Is he looking at his gospel, maybe? Is he reading what somebody else wrote about Jesus? Is he writing, reading some of his notes? We don't quite know. But there's something other, uh, another thing very significant going on in that picture. Can anybody see it? Look at his foot. He's standing on a bag of gold. And it's under his foot as if he doesn't really care about that anymore. It's spilling around. He found something better. And he found that, and he, found that he has a way to serve God. Is it just me or does this guy look a little bit like Abe Lincoln? And if you don't believe me, look at this next slide. And if you didn't know better, you'd be in the Lincoln Memorial looking at some other statue there. So God called Matthew, and Matthew responded and then used his gift to serve God and to serve us here. Okay, so here's the thing that I want you to hear. Here's the thing that I want you to take away with you this morning. Cheryl read it. A little earlier. By the way, take your bulletins home with you so you can know what scripture we read this morning and maybe start to read that a little bit and share it with each other this afternoon. God calls people to repentance. Here's what you need to hear. God calls people to repentance, repentance and invites them into a relationship with him. I'll say that again. God calls people to repentance and invites them into a relationship with him. He calls us to repentance. He invites us into a relationship with him. 
But it's actually Matthew that tells us that not everybody is going to respond to that calling. So when Jesus says to Matthew, follow me, it's a command. It's an order. Last week we talked about a young man who had died in the city of Nain. And they were carrying his body out on a stretcher and Jesus' entourage was coming into the city of Nain. And Jesus raised that young man back to life again. And he did it with a command. He said, get up. And I told you this, that that kid didn't have any choice but to get up. It's the same choice that a baseball would have when you chuck it across the yard. The ball has no choice. It just happens to it. Well, that when Jesus said, get up, life just happened into that kid. And he sat up, started talking, and he gave him back to his mother, it says. Well, here's the thing. I want you to listen to this. Don't fill your mind with other things because it's going to be just a moment. I want you to follow me here. Matthew didn't have a choice either when Jesus said, follow me. There's something built and wired into our DNA that when God gives us a command, we react to it. Now, how long that reaction lasts is up to you. So Matthew, sitting there, minding his own business, sees that intense gaze from the rabbi, and the rabbi says, follow me. He got up. But then he had a choice. Do I sit back down and pretend that didn't happen? Or should I actually follow him? Should I actually, actually, actually continue following him? Because we can either accept that relationship, that idea, or we can reject it. And to bring that to the extreme, that kid from Nain that I was telling you about that had to respond to the command that Jesus gave him that said, get up, he could have rejected Jesus' offer. Nain, like I told you last week, is on the mountains, in the mountains. They've got cliffs all over the place. He could have easily walked up to one of those cliffs, taken a nosedive off the cliff and said, Jesus, I appreciate the offer, but I want to go back to the state that I was in before you came along. I'm happy being dead. I don't want that life in me. Now, as ridiculous as that sounds, we make that same choice all the time. Are we going to respond to the call that Jesus gives us, and are we going to continue to respond to it, or are we going to take a nosedive off the cliff and be happy where we are before Jesus came and called us? And that's a daily choice that we make. That's something that goes on on a daily basis because we move away from Christ. We do. There's no getting around that. But he calls us back. And then we respond and we come back. And then we leave again. And then he calls us back and we come back again. We keep responding to that. Every Christian is called. And that's an ongoing verb. That's not a one and done deal. Matthew was sat at a table full of money, got up and left it. James, John, Peter left these boats full of fish. Jesus said, come and follow me. They were like, giddy up, let's go. Because whatever else I'm focusing on and concentrating on doesn't compare even close to what this guy offers me. So what is it that you won't leave behind? What is it that you won't walk away from to answer the call and actually follow him? Maybe it helped to define some terms. What does it mean to be called? Right? We throw these words around. Well, it means to make Jesus the center of your life. You might call yourself a believer, you might call, even call yourself a follower, but is he the center of your life? To answer his call is to make him the center of 
everything you do. Now, again, that makes us over here sometimes and over here sometimes, but we try to get better at it. We try to keep following him. And you know, here's the deal. When, Matthew called, when Jesus called Matthew, he performed a miracle on the same level as raising that kid from the dead in Nain. Of healing that leper, the same power, the same power that he made the paralyzed man walk, he called Matthew and performed the same miracle, the same power. And yes, that same power is calling you to make Jesus the king of your universe, the Lord of your life. Now, my question for you is this. I'm going to leave you with this. Are you willing to drop everything and follow him? Amen? Amen. All right, let's stand.